Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What? more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. On March 27, 1986, a bombing took place in Australia that would start an investigation that, at its conclusion, unraveled a long string of criminal activity. A crime committed by men who were not only criminals, but were part of a criminal group responsible for robberies and thefts all over the area. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. At approximately 1 p.m. on March 27, 1986, a blast rang through the Russell Street Police Headquarters in Melbourne, Australia, that not only shook the entire street, but left 22 people injured and one person, Constable Angela Taylor, just 21 years old, dead in the hospital just 24 hours later, giving her the tragic distinction of being the first Australian policewoman to be killed in the line of duty. When the dust cleared and the damage was assessed, over $1 million worth, investigators were able to find where the blast originated, a stolen 1979 Holden Commodore with a Victoria registration plate. Desperate to know who attacked their station and why, investigators dove headfirst into the case and found that gelignite and detonators were stolen from the Tyrconnell mine on October 7th and that the Commodore was stolen on March 25th. They believed the bomber or bombers, were actually targeting the Melbourne Magistrates Court located just opposite of the police headquarters because, 
prior to the devastation on Russell Street, a number of other bombings and murders had occurred between June of 1980 and April of 1985 against family court judges in Sydney. The timing and location seemed to be too coincidental. However, as the investigation carried on, the links between the Russell Street bombing and the family court's attacks were eventually ruled out. Then came an anonymous phone call to police commissioner Mick Miller from someone who claimed that they had footage of the men responsible for the bombing, but wanted $500,000 to be placed in a Swiss bank account before they would be willing to hand it over. The caller contacted Commissioner Miller's office on five separate occasions, and each time, the call was traced to a different public phone in and around the St. Kilda area. Needing more information and in hopes of luring the caller out of hiding, Commissioner Miller and Victoria's premier, John Kane, ordered the $500,000. Whatever they did seemed to work, and the caller was later identified as 38-year-old industrial chemist Vladimir Reichta, who was soon arrested and charged with hindering a police investigation. None of the information he claimed he had was real. However, in the search for the unknown caller, the task force received some information about a female witness who claimed that she saw a man parking a Commodore identical to the one used in the bombing right in front of the Russell Street Police Headquarters, just about 30 minutes before the bomb went off. Her description was enough to create an identikit picture of a man who, almost immediately, struck a chord with the investigators. The picture looked exactly like a career criminal named Claudio Krupe, who, in addition to a long list of armed robberies, made it no secret that he hated the police. More specifically, he had a grudge against a detective in the Victoria Police Major Crime Squad, who just so happened to work at Russell Street. Not only had Claudio been on bail when the bombing took place, but he left Melbourne shortly thereafter. Realizing he was a probable suspect, police raided Claudio's home and found a homemade device on his kitchen table. He was now a prime suspect, and on April 15, 1986, he was officially arrested and brought back to Melbourne. When questioned, Claudio claimed he was in no way involved in the bombing, and that the device recovered from his home was a fake meant to be planted at the police station in Flemington. Police were, once again, back at square one. Then a major break came in when investigators started to look into police reports filed near the time of the bombing. Three weeks before, on March 6, 1986, a Victoria Police Traffic Unit was in pursuit of a stolen red Daimler Sovereign in East Keylor, and during that pursuit, the vehicle turned down a side street and crashed, forcing the driver to flee on foot to the nearby St. Albans, where he stole another car at gunpoint. While the driver was able to make his escape, the Daimler was left unattended. Inside the trunk, Police found a backpack containing a number of Victorian license plates cut into small pieces. When they were put back together, they came back to a plate registered to a silver 1985 VK Commodore HDT that had also been stolen just before the Russell Street bombing. Now, the second Commodore, while not matching to the car used in the bombing, did match the description of a vehicle used in an armed robbery of a bank in Donvale on the same day of the bombing just three hours later. A car that was later recovered from the Yara River on April 7, 1986, and upon examination, saw the same drill marks as the one seen on the bombing Commodore to try and get rid of the VIN number. Basically, what they found out was that the same person who was involved in the police pursuit on May 6th was somehow involved in the Russell Street bombing. 
Because the police caught a good look at the driver in that pursuit, a quick look at some mugshot at him as Peter Reed. Peter, a person of interest in a number of armed robberies and car thefts, and all of those connected to him were placed under police surveillance. On April 25, 1986, 10 Victoria police officers raided the home of Peter Reed, and upon attempting to arrest him, Peter pulled out a revolver and began shooting at the police. While one was wounded, Detective Sergeant Mark Wiley, shots were returned and a wounded Peter Reed was finally arrested. While searching his home, detectives found a number of firearms containing those same drill marks to scratch out their serial numbers. They also found a police scanner, several stolen plates, and two detonators sitting on a backpack identical to the one used in the Russell Street bombing. Inside that bag were sticks of gelignite. In addition to finding all of this incriminating evidence, after dusting the home for prints, police found a set that matched a man named Craig Minogue on the bathroom door. And on the newspaper used to wrap up the Jellic Knight were prints belonging to his brother, Rodney Minogue. Rodney, who, upon a look into his background, was found to have served time in prison with Peter Reed. Everything seemed to be falling into place, and a raid on another associate's home found enough bomb components that police were certain these men were the ones responsible for the Russell Street bombing. Wanting enough information to secure their case, police began questioning the associate whose home they raided after Peter's. Carl Zelinka, who had no criminal record, admitted that he knew Peter through his association with Craig Minogue, and said that it was Craig who brought home the Commodore used in the bombing. He also said that Craig paid both him and his girlfriend to fly to Sydney the day before the bombing, and that when they returned the day after the event, he saw the Minogue brothers filling up a small trailer and saying that they were moving out of Carl's home. With Carl's help, police were able to locate another associate, Stanley Brian Taylor, referred to as Stan the Man, who had a criminal record dating all the way back to the late 1940s. But after being a model prisoner, had become a social worker and a bit-part actor. Stanley was arrested on May 30, 1986, and claimed that he did not have any part in the bombing and only knew the Minogue brothers through his job as a social worker. He did, however, say that it was Craig, Rodney, and Peter who were responsible for the Russell Street bombing. A raid on their home found further evidence implicating them in the bombing, but as of then, the Minogue brothers were completely in the wind. A few hours later, police finally located Craig and Rodney at the Motor Inn Motel in Swan Hill, and under interrogation, both men denied any involvement in the bombing. However, after speaking with their mother, Rodney Minogue broke down and said that it was Craig, Peter, and Stan who were responsible naming Stanley Taylor as the mastermind behind the whole entire operation. After some digging, police were able to confirm a lot of their suspicions and found out that the Minogue brothers, Peter and Stanley, were all known members of an armed robbery crew called the Animals and the Boys Crew. Groups who, under Stan Taylor's lead, had been named in several armed robberies and car thefts all around the area. Given this bit of information, police surmise that the motive behind the bombing was to get revenge against the police. Stanley Taylor and Craig Minogue were convicted of murder and various other offenses related to the bombing, while Peter Reed and Rodney Minogue were acquitted. Peter was later convicted on a number of offenses related to his arrest and the shootout with police. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison. 
Craig was sentenced to life behind bars with a non-parole period of 30 years, and Stan Taylor was given a life sentence with no chance of parole. The first person in Victoria to be sentenced as such. He died behind bars at the age of 79. On July 22, 1988, Craig Minogue, then 26 years old, beat a fellow inmate to death with a pillowcase loaded with gym weights. Since then, however, Craig has done a number of things behind bars that are of positive note. Craig has initiated a number of legal challenges against the Victorian government, most of which stem from his treatment while in prison and the rights of his fellow inmates. And in 2005, Craig, who was illiterate upon his entrance into prison, graduated with honors and received a bachelor's degree in arts. He was accepted as a PhD student at La Trobe University and became the first prisoner in Australia to do so. He was awarded his PhD in Applied Ethics, Human and Social Services in 2012. A few years later, in 2016, Craig was denied parole as a result of a new legislation that eliminated the possibility of parole for persons convicted and sentenced, quote, for the murder of a person who the prisoner knew was or was reckless as to whether the person was a police officer. The legislation was applied retroactively, so it affected his chances of parole in the future. In 2017, he sought to challenge the validity of this new law. And on June 20th, 2018, the High Court unanimously ruled that the section did not apply to Craig because he was not sentenced on the basis that the prisoner knew or was reckless as to whether Constable Angela Taylor was a police officer. However, on August 1st, 2018, the Victorian Parliament amended the Corrections Act to Section 74AB that Craig could not be granted parole unless the board believes he is in imminent danger of dying or seriously incapacitated. This ruling removed any chance that Craig could be paroled. He remains in prison. Both Craig and Peter Reed were later charged with sexual assault offenses that occurred just before the bombing. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on March 28th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.